This is the first of many important events to be hosted at the Canadian Club in the year 2009. Our 32nd Annual Financial Post Outlook Luncheon is a great start for a great year to come. But let's look back for just a moment. One year ago, when we gathered for our 2008 Financial Post Outlook Luncheon, we posed a few questions. We asked if the credit crunch would settle down. We wondered if global economies, including our own, could sustain a downturn in the U.S. economy. Would the superloony continue to fly higher and higher? And oil prices, would they climb throughout the year, helping Canada fend off the worst of a global slowdown? And would central banks cut rates to try to spur their economies? Well, to all except the last question, the wounded bear of 2008 wrote a pretty unequivocal no. Today, with consumer confidence at, at its lowest ebb in many a decade, we are asking a different set of questions. Are we careening into a future without a North American automobile industry? Will we retreat to the days of a gold standard? Or will cool public and private heads be able to work together and prevail? And how far should governments wade into these troubled waters? To answer these and other questions, we have assembled a thoughtful and delightfully opinionated panel of experts. Terence Corcoran, Diane Francis, and John Iveson join us from the post. Warren Jeston, Senior Vice President and Chief Economist of Scotiabank, is the only economist among this pack of journalists. <laughs> it should be an interesting fight, and I'm not sure if it's going to be a fair one. And Sean O'Shea, Global News Consumer and Investigative Reporter, will be our moderator today. So let's get on with it. Panelists, we are ready to hear your perspectives and your prophecies. Following your discussion, our audience members will be invited to pepper you with their own questions. So off we go. Thank you, Helen, and good afternoon, everyone, and thank you once again for joining us. I'm pleased to assume the role of moderator uh, for this year's Outlook event, and I'd like to thank the Canadian Club of Toronto, National Post, and Scotiabank for inviting me to participate in today's program. Uh, this afternoon's program will proceed as follows. Each of our expert panelists will take to the podium to make their case and present their forecast for 2009. <clears throat> Following the final presentation, we will open up the floor to you for our question and answer session. Now, as Helen mentioned, uh, you'll find question cards on your table like this one, which you can use to jot down your questions for any or all of your panelists. And later on in the program, uh, these cards are going to be collected from you and handed to me. So I encourage you to make good use of this opportunity to go one-on-one -on -one with the speakers. And now, without further delay, I would like to call upon our first presenter, Mr. Warren Jeston. Warren. Thanks, Sean. I've got eight minutes to go over what's happening in the global economy and give you my solutions as well as my fearless forecast of where things are going in the next couple of years or so. So what I'm going to do is focus in on four basic issues. One, the cyclical issues that are going to dominate uh, the economy over the next uh, nine to 12 months. We're going to be very focused on those. The longer-term structural issues we have to pay attention to as well, and that would be the second part of my remarks. Third part is why Canada is different in the, uh, in the global trends, or at least slightly different. And finally, what uh, this forecast means for the average Canadian. Now, the cyclical side of things is extraordinarily different than many times in past uh, setbacks because it has synchronicity. And what I mean by that is that this year, all major industrial economies will be uh, experiencing economic decline. Emerging markets are slowing down substantially, and in fact, global growth is probably going to be around 1 to 1.5%, which is a far cry from the 5% or better that we had seen in some of the boom years. There is also a synchronicity across various asset classes, uh, commodity markets, real estate, and, uh, and equities, all uh, reacting at the same time. And the fallout in the financial sector, which has been painful in the U.S. and some other economies, is far from over. We have focused on housing, whereas uh, consumer lending, uh, real estate markets are also vulnerable to, uh, to uh, setback and will have financial fallout in, those, uh, in the economies that are particularly hard-pressed, such as the U.S. And the Main Street fallout for the average citizen is just starting in terms of layoffs, in terms of uh, profit compression, 
you read a lot about the construction sector, the auto sector, and the like. But I think you're going to find in my, my overall theme of synchronicity that there's going to be a broad-based adjustment, and that will be particularly with us for the first six months of the year, second six months, some recuperation, but by and large, the overall period of recuperation and recovery is likely to be a lengthy one. The growth drivers are also shifting from the consumer sector and business to government and infrastructure. And the, uh, the ability of fiscal policy to actually click into gear and provide support has obvious lags, getting the projects uh, underway, getting the shovels in the ground, getting the tax uh, changes, actually motivating people to go out and spend. Moreover, the massive U.S. monetary uh, stimulus will help, but it doesn't change the fact that both borrowers and lenders are cautious. So if I were summarizing what we're likely to see in the next uh, six to nine months in particular, it's ongoing caution, adjustment, and the likelihood of unexpected events. What we would, uh, what we would like to say is event risk, uh, economists refer to it, uh, as being at a very, very high level, things that we didn't expect but nevertheless uh, come up to change materially the, the economic outlook. The structural adjustments are very profound at the same time. Old drivers of global locomotion are at a tipping point. U.S. households have been driven by a borrow-to-buy model over the last uh, 15 years or so. That's being replaced by an earn-and-save-before-you-buy model, slower consumer spending. And, in fact, you're seeing that already in a rising U.S. savings rate, which is being reinforced by the fact that real estate uh, values are going down, home prices are going down. That had been a major motivating force for the U.S. economy. Moreover, there is a profound amount of global deleveraging occurring right now. And that's going to be reinforced as regulators uh, move to change the financial infrastructure globally to ensure that the type of uh, uh, setback that we've seen in the financial system never happens again. The prolonged convalescence that I talked about earlier on is uh, pointing to industry downsizing and restructuring, a fact of life that will extend well beyond 2009. And on the inflation front, you will see some inflation. Food prices, uh, some other issues will be, uh, will be affected by uh, crop cycles and the like. But the underlying uh, forces will be deflationary, in my view, through 2009, 2010. Inflation is not an issue for monetary policy. So for the next, de next decade, less impetus from export growth. Perhaps trade restrictions are one of the greatest threats to the overall uh, growth of the global economy. An increased role of government that we're already seeing through regulate, regulation and also direct investment. And also, U.S. and other governments may have a hard time reversing their borrow-to-buy policies that will be essential to supporting the economy uh, uh, around the world over the next uh, year or so. Why is Canada different? Well, you've heard the story before and you've read about it uh, quite a lot. Uh, our financial system is rated one of the best, if not the best, in the world in terms of soundness. We have better household and government balance sheets. These are strategic advantages for our economy. The longer-term benefits of resource abundance in a resource-short world also will play a major impact on our growth potential over the next decade. But let's not kid ourselves. The U.S.-led global retrenchment that's uh, going on right now and is becoming increasingly embedded in Canada <clears throat> suggests that our output will drop by about 1% this year versus 2% in the U.S., with much of the uh, economic decline focused in central Canada. Slower growth is the message for Western Canada. What does this mean for the average Canadian? Well, first of all, it's a buyer's market for consumer durables and for housing. At the same time, if you look at the flip side of that, it's a challenging environment, challenging business environment in terms of profitability and it points to a soft housing market on a go-forward basis. For consumers, low inflation. For businesses, the absence of pricing power. The Bank of Canada, in our view, will cut interest rates another percentage point over the next few months, uh, reducing rates in here, as we have seen in other countries, to historic lows. That said, despite the efforts of the, the U.S. government to keep uh, long-term interest rates low, I expect the U.S. bond market and other bond markets will remain very volatile particularly as investors begin to see these absolutely humongous U.S. deficits emerge and other deficits emerge. In the U.S., for example, we're rounding at a trillion dollar in terms of the deficit forecast. Uh, we don't even pay attention to tens of billions. It seems to be rounding to hundreds of billions and trillions nowadays. And that will continue, I think, over the next couple of years. Finally, the Canadian dollar. <clears throat> Last year, 
Well, it was on its way to parity and beyond. Uh, halfway through the year, we began to see some changes, and by year end, of course, we had had a, a big change. We were over parity, and we were as low as 77 cents. What's the message from the market? In the current environment, volatility is the order of the day. Even today, we've seen a two-cent move in the currency in relatively, uh, in relatively uh, calm markets. For the rest of the year, not only is it going to be uh, volatility, but in the type of environment that I'm uh, talking about, soft commodity markets, weak economic activities suggest that the currency will remain in the low to mid-80s with a lot of range around that particular forecast. Challenging year, one that we have uh, uh, a lot of adjustments to, to look forward to, one that suggests that prudent management, cautious spending is the order of the day. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Warren. I'd now like to call upon uh, Mr. Terrence Corcoran to the podium. Terrence. Thank you very much, Sean, and uh, Happy New Year to everybody. And I, I want to start off uh, by referring back to this event last year and to my uncannily accurate outlook for 2008. 2008 was the year of the rat in the Chinese zodiac, and the year of the rat occurs every 12 years. And looking back over the decades, I had found that in the previous five years of the rat produced recession and economic turmoil, and so... I predicted that 2008 seemed set to deliver a multiple whammy of similar turmoil, a rerun of the previous five years of the RAT, which included recessions, an oil crisis, possibly currency crises. So 2008 looked ominous and dangerous, and so it was, except it was worse. This year, 2009 in the Chinese zodiac, is the year of the ox, no, I don't really believe in zodiacs, but it worked for me last year, so. <laughs> when we think of an ox, we think of a big, dumb animal pulling a plow around or a water buffalo sort of mired in, in mud. But if you look at an image of an ox from a certain way, the position of the horns, the hulking body shape, it looks bullish. And just to make the point, I've asked our staff to produce one of those images on the screen. Now, that's, that's from an actual Zodiac website. Now, that looks like a bull to me. Uh, 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 but will 2009 actually be the year of the bull? And I did another statistical correlation, and my research shows that five of the last seven years of the Ox produced a bull market in stocks. Going back to 1926, the Dow Jones Industrial Average rose between 15 and 30% in each of those five years. So at least we have that good omen to look forward to in 2009. And we are certainly very likely to be sitting at the bottom of a trough in the market and a, a, a recovery uh, set to take place uh, over the next 12 months. It, it's a, sort of a, a logical thing to assume, although there are many reasons to doubt that that will happen, and I want to mention briefly here three key obstacles to economic recovery and to a new bull market. The first obstacle is government policy. The second obstacle is government policy. <laughs> and the third obstacle is government policy. A government policy obstacle number one is the avalanche of stimulus programs and policies all over the globe. The objective of these policies is to inject some confidence into the investment and lending markets and to stimulate a new bull market. Now, as those of you who have worked on farms know, stimulating a bull is a tricky business. <laughs> I won't get into the delicate details of the stimulation process here, but I can say that in the financial markets, there are many obstacles to be overcome. And one of the biggest is investor resistance to the stimulus, stimulus movements that are taking place all over the world. There's a lot of suspicion and skepticism out there. For example, there's the Bernie Madoff case. He ran a Ponzi scheme that built thousands of sophisticated investors out of $50 billion. Investors, therefore, are now more alert than ever to Ponzi schemes. And a Ponzi scheme, as you know, is when 
You take money from one group of people, tell them you're investing it in solid, good things, but instead you pay the money out to other people to cover for bad investments. Now, when the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve and other central banks buy up trillions of dollars in assets from banks, they are also using other people's money and transferring it to banks to cover their bad loans and investments. So investors, and indeed all players in the economy, are rightly suspicious when they see trillion-dollar bailouts and stimulus programs, big government deficits, and zero interest rates. They are also rightly suspicious when politicians start telling investors and businesses and business people what they should be doing with their money. When the finance minister tells the banks they should start lending more money and stop hoarding their cash, we all know that spells trouble. Would you buy shares in a bank that's operating under a government edict to lend, possibly to specific groups of people? When governments invest 20, 30, maybe in the end of it all, $100 billion in the auto industry, investors know this is a giant distortion in the market. Would you buy shares in an auto company controlled by governments under government direction as to which green policies to follow, what kind of cars to build, who to lend to? What makes matters worse is the haphazard nature of these interventions. We have stop-and-go programs, programs whose details are not known, investment and bailouts that are essentially secret transactions in some cases. Now, until governments settle down and stop their massive and seemingly hysterical attempts to stimulate the economy, the markets will remain dangerous and uncertain. Investors are capitalists in our market economy, and the capitalists at the moment are on strike. Now, it would be nice to think that these last few weeks of, that we just went through of 2008 and the, uh, this first week of 2009 have provided a bit of a, of a cooling off uh, period and a turning point in policymaking that will make things seem a little more sensible going forward. But there, the opposite may be true. Two weeks from tomorrow, Barack Obama is to be sworn in as President of the United States. He has big plans for more stimulus, more government programs and regulations of all kinds of industries, from energy to cars, a new deal for America and the world, it's going to be called. Three weeks from tomorrow, Stephen Harper's government delivers a deficit budget for Canada, a new deal for Canada. The objectives of both men is to stimulate the economy. Now let's hope they know what they're doing and they deliver 2009 into the year of the bull. Thank you very much and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Terence. Uh, before I call upon our next panelist, I just want to take a moment to remind everybody about the uh, cards that are on your table for the Q&A session that will follow our final speaker. Just please make sure to raise the card up if you've filled it out and somebody will come around to collect it uh, straight away. Now I'm pleased to call upon our next panelist, Mr. John Iveson. Thank you, Sean. Happy New Year. When I was uh, asked to uh, take part in the Outlook lunch, it didn't seem such a big deal to, uh, to toss off a few predictions about the coming year in politics, and that was before Ottawa went through the looking glass last December. Uh, who would have predicted that pub arguments would erupt, not over whether the Maple Leafs were the worst Leaf team ever, but over, over whether the uh, Governor-General was going to prorogue Parliament? Uh, in a panic, I sought some advice from an old friend who works as a stargazer for a satirical website in the UK, Psychic Bob came in useful. His uh, suggestions for the coming year look remarkably uh, apropos. January, don't let yourself get depressed over a few minor setbacks. Things are going to get much worse. <laughs> February, you don't want to know, seriously. You get the drift. Anyway, we don't tend to go in for that kind of satire in the parliamentary press gallery, despite the fact that there is no lack of uh, humorous material when Parliament is sitting. But uh, uh, my own feeling is that sanity is going to return to the Hill when, uh, when the Parliament, our political masters, come back to work later this month. The reason I say that is that, uh, from Michael Ignatius' point of view, 
I don't see any particular political advantage to, for him in bringing down the government as part of an unholy alliance with uh, Gilles Duceppe and Jack Layton. Now, no qualifications are required to be an MP, but most of them can read. And uh, the opinion polls suggest that when it comes to good ideas, most Canadians see the coalition on a par with the Spruce Goose and the Ugandan space programme. There is a constituency in the Liberal Party that does want to bring down the, the, Liberal, the, uh, the government regardless of public opinion, but I don't think Mr Ignatieff is part of that. He's more positioning himself as a man of the political centre, the, the heir to Chrétien and Martin. Uh, he thinks the economic crisis will eventually work to the advantage of a party that actually embraces the idea that governments can be part of the solution. And secondly, I think that he knows that he could still walk through most Tim Hortons in the country without a ripple. Uh, he, he, know, he can't risk really going to the polls, I think, until Canadians get to know him better, and that's going to take some time. So if time is on his side, as he believes, why bring down the government now? He would probably end up wearing the, uh, the blame for most of the, the, the economic crisis, which is only now gradually unfolding throughout the, uh, the rest of the economy. I think all the indications suggest that Mr Ignatieff has made this calculation and has already decided to support the government on the budget vote on the 27th. Uh, the name Alfie Moreau will not mean much to many people in this room, but uh, Alfie was, is or was the, the, the Liberal Tour Director. He was the guy who made the planes and the buses run on time when, uh, during an election, going back as far as most reporters on the Hill can remember. Now, he was fired from the opposition leader's office recently uh, as Mr Ignatiev cleared out Stefan Dion's staff and brought in his own people. And uh, it's a kind of canary in the coal mine for me. I think if, if Mr Ignatiev had been planning to go to the people, then uh, Alfie would still be in a job. So if we can have some confidence that Ignatiev does not intend to overthrow the government, what prospect that our three-dimensional chess-playing Prime Minister won't engineer his own demise? Uh, the theory in some quarters is that Mr Harper uh, would prefer Mr Ignatiev to govern through the worst of the recession and then conveniently allowing the Conservatives to come back into government with a majority at some indeterminate point in the future. Um, I think there is no doubt that Stephen Harper uh, has earned a reputation for being too clever by three quarters but I do think that that's a conspiracy theory too far. Uh, talking to people in the Conservative camp, uh, the word is that uh, the Prime Minister is reaching out to his opponents on the budget. Uh, he sent ministers, Flaherty, Baird, Clement, Finlay, all over the country seeking input from provinces. And my guess is that we're going to see a Prime Minister who is more focused on the well-being of Canadians than on the ill health and penury of his political opponents. This is not to suggest that the normal rules of politics have been suspended. Uh, the Conservative campaign director told me last week that they are ready to rumble. The, uh, the, uh, the war room is up and running, the candidates are in hand, money is in place, campaign storyboards have been written, so they are ready. But I think the Prime Minister was, uh, was shaken by the visceral reaction that his uh, economic uh, statement in November received, in particular the, the attempt to beggar the opposition on uh, the public subsidy issue. I suspect, just as an aside, I suspect this, this is a, an act of grand political folly that may come back to haunt him and may deal his uh, hopes of a majority a fatal blow. Um, for many people, I think it confirmed the suspicion that uh, Harper has a hidden agenda, which I think they've done a pretty good job of dispelling up until that point. We've already seen some signs of a new mood of cooperation in Ottawa with the appointment of Thomas Cromwell, uh, the recently appointed uh, Supreme Court judge, uh, there was a vetting process that the Conservatives introduced for, uh, for Supreme Court judges, which was circumvented after Mr Harper phoned Mr Ignatieff and both agreed it was a suitable appointment. And I suspect that that spirit will, will, uh, will also translate into the, to the committee rooms, which have really been uh, like sandpits, the, the amount of squabbling going on between MPs, who I think are arriving at the, uh, belatedly arriving at the conclusion that uh, Canadians are not impressed by their endless subordination of long-term important issues to the scoring of political points. Now, while Mr. Harper may be willing to play nice with his opponents, I think detente will have its limits. For example, I don't think the Conservative budget is likely to satisfy Jack Layton or the demands of Jack Layton, which could be summarised as, we must do something, this is something, therefore we must do it. <laughs> the word in Ottawa is that the government is going to attempt to use this crisis to prepare Canada for labour shortage that will come down the, the line when uh, the baby boomers start retiring. Uh, the speculation is that much of the new spending will be geared towards investment in skills retraining through an enriched employment insurance programme. 
Uh, under this plan, newly unemployed workers will be paid to go back to community college or university to tune up their skills and learn an entirely new craft, which should mop up some uh, short-term oversupply in the labour market and hopefully leave us with a more productive and better trained workforce in the longer term. The beauty for the Conservatives of this scheme is that it puts money in the hands of people who will spend it. I think in the US we saw last year that the tax cut was really stuffed under the mattresses by, uh, by many people. Um, it also saves the Conservatives the, the, the inconvenience of having to pick winners and losers among the long line of industries that are going to be looking for a handout. The real asset test to me of this uh, new era of cooperation will come not, I suspect, at the, at the time of the budget vote, but uh, it will be what comes next. The Conservatives campaigned hard during the October election on a justice package that included tougher penalties for young offenders uh, that would see uh, life sentences handed down to 14-year-olds. The Liberals at the time said they would go to an election before they passed such legislation. Uh, on the other hand, the Conservatives said that they intend making those justice bills votes of confidence, which would mean we all go back to the, to the polls if those positions remain entrenched, uh, something that would obviously leave the, uh, the, the political system paralysed at a time when counter-cyclical fiscal policy may be the only thing that stands between many people in the soup kitchens. Uh, conversely, if the government makes clear that only money bills will be treated as, as uh, uh, confidence votes going forward, I think it will go a long way to restoring some of the trust in Parliament, which is, is, has evaporated at the moment. Speaking to somebody in the, the Prime Minister's office last week, I got the impression that there has been a real shift in the government's position. Uh, he said, uh, we've, we've said, the government has said, the economy is our top priority and other items are secondary. So a softening would be a fair interpretation. Anyway, in conclusion, I would caution against anybody in the audience taking these predictions to the bank. Uh, I'm no psychic bob. It's well recognised in Ottawa that uh, uh, if it's news to Ottawa, it's quite often news to me too. But um, my sense is that the outlook for the economy is so gloomy that there's a strangely rosy tinge to life in, uh, in Ottawa at the moment. And it shocks me to say this, but uh, 2009 might actually bring out the best in our politicians. Thank you. Thank you, John. I'd now like to call upon our final panelist, Diane Francis. Diane. Predictions and forecasting always reminds me of one of the zaniest and favorite news stories that I wrote in, in the 80s. Peter Pocklington, who is now in the middle of another scandal, was in the middle of a financial scandal back then, and I was given a lawsuit by his former employee, who was a psychic, who he employed, uh, for unpaid bills. And I thought, well, no wonder he didn't pay her. She couldn't have been very good. She should have known he wouldn't pay her. Uh, anyway. My forecasts uh, from last year are best forgotten on the economic side. I should have consulted Chinese astrology like Terence did. Uh, I did, however, foresee, I guess, uh, luckily, the election of Obama over all of others in the field. He was a long shot, but he was a standout, and the time was right. Um, so what's happened? Uh, I would say about the only person in the, in, the, in the economy that called it right that I've come across is Prem Watsa of Fairfax, and I've interviewed him several times. He nailed it. He made $2 billion for his company, uh, and he defied the odds by doing that. And uh, that's about the only one that I can, I can see on the horizon in the, in the financial world who saw it coming. Everybody else uh, failed to, and now we have really the equivalent, I think, of a depression. Um, it's not like the big depression, uh, because the difference is we have social safety nets to cushion the blow, we're not going to have food lines and so on, and there's a degree of international cooperation that is unprecedented in history in terms of economic and fiscal and other kinds of cooperation. So that, I think, is going to backstop our, our global economy to the point where uh, we will pull through this between two and five years. That seems to be the consensus. But like the last Great Depression, we are going to be in for some sweeping reforms, and the need for them is pretty obvious because the seeds of this crisis uh, were sown in the lack of regulation 
in the global economy, and I'll explain. And also, lest we forget, free enterprise has never really been unfettered since the 30s. Uh, if you look at our stock markets in mature economies, we have everything from timely and full disclosure rules, insider trading, trading halts, restrictions on short trading, margin buying, um, insider trading and tipping laws. Uh, we have market makers to smooth out the, the vicissitudes of stock trading and a host of other breaks and accelerators in mature stock markets that were not there and in the, in the so-called global shadow economy. What's happened since 89 is a combination of technology, free trade, foreign direct investment has led to the co complete enmeshment uh, into the globalization of capital markets. At the same time, there was no concurrent globalization of oversight, and the vacuum resulted in the crisis we now have. Into this vacuum and international space leaped crooks who had a field day, whether it was Madoff, selling instruments and not being checked up on, using Wall Street firms that didn't check up on him, using regulators who didn't do their jobs properly, uh, and legitimate firms, banks, shadows, so-called shadow banks like hedge funds and others who were easily able to circumvent the national rules and regulations that governed their capital and asset and behavior back home. And so lots of off-balance sheet shenanigans took place. This is a small c criminal issue here, and there's going to be lots of litigation and lots of jailings, I believe, going forward and lots of uh, creation of new international global oversight institutions. If you look at the U.S. subprime, that involves 25 percent of the American housing stock. Uh, there were people able to get mortgage brokers license in a matter of hours who were able to get friends who couldn't afford houses into houses, people who were duped into houses. All of these mortgages were passed along at a discount higher and higher up the food chain until Wall Street packaged them, had them rated with good credits, re-rated them fraudulently, and exported it to the rest of the world. And that weakened the financial sector worldwide. Again, no oversight, no transparency, no disclosure, no countervail. The worst player of all, however, in my opinion, was AIG, which was the world's largest insurance company, aided and abetted by the Wall Street five or six that are now gone. Operated in 60 countries, sold fire insurance, homeowners, life insurance, and the insurance industry is one of the most regulated anywhere in the world. Uh, you have to have a certain amount of capital and the assets, your, what you can invest in are closely guarded. How you sell your insurance is carefully guarded. They created the credit default swap and took it to a new height, and they laid it off with the other Wall Street firms and others copied. Basically, they were writing a form of financial hurricane insurance without any money to back the claims. And when the claims came in, we hit the wall. And AIG alone is responsible, the estimates, for $42 trillion worth of credit default swaps, and their biggest securitization partner was Lehman's. And that's why Lehman's was in the worst shape. So that's what happened, and that's going to result in a lot of changes in the global economy, the so-called international space that was unregulated. Canada, as John said, is relatively in good shape and Warren, um, but as of, 19, as of January 20th, we will see the dawn of Obamanomics. He's looking at a thousand days, not a hundred days, of huge rollout of new interesting policies, dramatic policies, to try and turn around that, that huge ship that represents 23% of the world's GDP and was responsible for most of the problems, actually. Whatever he does or doesn't do will affect Canada in a very great way. He will cut taxes, which should force us to cut taxes, deficits be damned. He will bail out Detroit and continue to throw money at that problem. We are participants already. We will have to continue to be. He will look at energy in a very new way, and I'm happy to see Premier Stelmach be proactive and talk about how the Americans should look to our oil sands for energy security of supply and a reasonable way to move forward, and that's very important. At the same time, energy will converge with environmental restraints, and that will also involve Canada, not only our laws, but our practices and our policies. 
In healthcare, they're going to make huge changes. We had an interesting piece about how healthcare, universal health care for Americans is going to create more of a brain drain in Canada and other countries of our doctors and nurses. I think that may be overstated. But one thing that's very important and I think they will understand is that health care is actually an economic policy, meaning that if the United States doesn't do catastrophic health insurance for every American, and I'm not talking about the ones that are without, but anyone, they will not be able to get people to spend again. One of the biggest expenditures and the biggest fears that every American has is the lack of health care or sufficient amount of money. And last year, a million Americans went bankrupt because they couldn't pay their medical bills. It's not approaching the subprime foreclosure issue, but it is a very big problem. And people are holding on to their money lest someone gets ill. And that's not to be forgotten. So it's also going to become, I think, on the economic as well as the social policy side and something they're going to move on. The good news is uh, that the global cooperation is going to fix it. And in the time I have left, I'm going to fire out a few fearless forecasts. Uh, tax cuts, we will have tax cuts in the United States. Housing will remain soft for the rest of the year. Commodities flat, oil holding, I hope. Gold will go up as inflation goes up, if inflation goes up, and I take Warren's comments very, very carefully, and if the U.S. dollar goes down. Stock market, I think, is tricky. I wouldn't advise people to touch it. Interest rates will remain about the same. The Canadian dollar, the same. And deficits will go way up. And government shouldn't worry about deficits, nor should taxpayers. As Ken Rogoff said of Harvard, worrying about Deficit spending is like worrying about the measles when you're about to get the plague. Um, so to summarize, I think 2009 will certainly not be worse than 2008, and hold the course, and thank you. Thank you, Diane. Okay, so we're going to open up to some questions that I've been given here now, and I'm just going to ask our panelists to be as, as brief as possible so we can get a few more of your questions in. The first question is, uh, I'm going to direct it over to, to Terrence. Uh, how much of a role did the media have in precipitating weakened consumer confidence, and what role should the media have in its recovery? Because I hear this one a lot. Uh, well, maybe you can answer it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, obviously the, the media has picked up on an overwhelming sense of uh, doom and gloom that's, uh, that's out there, and it's been feeding it and accelerating it and, uh, and uh, uh, magnifying it. Uh, and if you're an average uh, person who's looking at this stuff, and I bump into people everywhere who are always asking me what's, what's happening to the economy, where, where is it going, and they, they're, they're all in a sense of anticipation. The degree to which... Uh, the media plays uh, a role is uh, uh, something for I see some of our famous pollsters out here uh, could be maybe uh, that's something they could work on but it, it it's a factor but how big it is I have no idea okay uh, let's ask uh, Warren the following question are the Canadian banks lending to consumers and businesses at the same rate as a year ago and if not when will they begin to start doing so again Actually, business uh, lending has been growing very rapidly, and part of the problem uh, on the business side, of course, is that types of financing that were available uh, a year ago or more when exotic products were on the market, some of the products that uh, got uh, the U.S. under a lot of difficulties are no longer available. So uh, at least from the bank's perspective, uh, lending has been going up. But let's uh, take a look at what's happening out in the economy. I mean, there's not a whole lot of businesses in the current environment that want to expand substantially their capacity. Uh, so they're going to be much more cautious in borrowing. And there are borrowers that simply would not qualify now because of the economic circumstances they find themselves in. But if you look at the trends, at least through November, they have been pretty, uh, pretty solid. Similarly, in the housing market, if you look at consumers, I mean, the housing market was actually doing extraordinarily well in Canada up until the uh, fall. But as the U.S. economic malaise began to affect confidence and uh, economic activity here, things have changed. Prices are no longer going up. They're stable to down in a lot of the markets. And in that type of environment, consumers, too, will be much more cautious about borrowing. So there's two sides to this particular one. But to date, 
banks are open for business. Certainly Scotiabank is. If you're interested in doing a deal, please come in and see us. So my chance of getting a car loan is, uh, is not so bad. Okay. All right, here's an easy one for John. John, clearly Stephen Harper is history. <laughs> That's it? That's not the question. Yeah. <laughs> Will he resign before he is defeated by new Liberal leader Michael Ignatieff? Well, uh, certain of my colleagues suggested as much last week that uh, he, should, he should know when to go. Um, my experience is politicians never know when to go and uh, generally outstay their welcome. I think at the moment uh, there are no real challengers. I remember the, the Tuesday after the co coalition was formed, um, I was talking to a guy who had been contacted by three potential candidates uh, not by the candidates themselves, but by people around them who were just thinking, well, is it time now to, to, uh, to gear up? And those three were uh, Jim Prentice, uh, Peter McKay, and Bernard Lord. Now, I'm not saying that, they, that there are formal campaigns going, but on that Tuesday, Mr. Harper looked pretty vulnerable. He looks a whole lot less vulnerable today, I would suggest. Uh, I think, he'll, I think he'll, he'll stay the course. He has no wish, I don't think, to... to uh, to be there for a dynasty. I don't think he wants to be there for a thousand years, but uh, I don't think he's going to go anywhere anytime soon. I, 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 if, I can, if I can just add something to that, I don't know where this idea comes from. Uh, I noticed Lawrence Martin in the Globe wrote a long piece, or the long column, uh, uh, the other day speculating as to when Harper would go and how he would engineer his own ex exit. Uh, I don't know where this come from, comes from. I think Harper is in a, is in a very strong position. Uh, he's got the, the budget to work through. I don't think the Liberals are in any position to call an election. Uh, uh, Harper's is is uh, is in a position where he can sort of control the agenda for the next uh, six months for sure. And uh, uh, I don't know where these types of questions come from. Looking at the the, the political uh, landscape, uh, it's it's a nice liberal fantasy that Harper's going to go away and open the door for for Ignatia, but I don't think that's going to happen. And I think there's going to be an election at some point between these two men. A lot of our panelists were talking about stimulus and and uh, government spending. Uh, Diane, uh, do you think the the auto bailout was a good idea? I don't think there was any choice. Uh, is it a good idea? Not really. It's too bad it had to happen. Uh, how much is going to be needed? I don't know. They have to make cars people want to buy. They actually did a good job of that. Uh, those SUVs and gas guzzlers were very popular, and uh, the companies were, were profitable. Those divisions were profitable, and they were profitable abroad as well. Um, the unions, the bondholders, the shareholders have already, the management has to change, uh, but all those people, all those stakeholders have to take a major haircut. And apparently one of the big impediments in the U.S. is that uh, bankruptcy, uh, bankruptcy will not allow necessarily uh, full-blown full bankruptcy. There will be many impediments to forcing unions to uh, reduce their wages or the bondholders to take a hit. Uh, and it would appear, according to a lot of the consensus that I've been reading, that about the only way they can, can actually impose these things is through an out-and-out -out nationalization. And that will be met with a huge amount of resistance because auto workers in Detroit are paid almost double the average industrial wage in the United States. So it's going to be tricky, but they have to do it. It's four million jobs. I want to ask Warren to jump in on that from the economics point of view. Does it make sense? Well, you've got to do it in the confines of uh, the reality of the next few years. I mean, there's more Americans uh, that uh, – or, sorry, there's more cars on the road than Americans of legal age to drive uh, in terms of at least registered vehicles. There's only so many cars you can put in a driveway. The industry is crying out for very, very fundamental change. Moreover, over the next uh, six months or so, the line for special assistance is going to get exceptionally long. So uh, as we judge how much uh, goes to the auto sector versus other sectors, uh, we have to realize that there's only a certain amount of money that the government has to give out for restructuring. And uh, that restructuring going to the auto sector is exceptionally, exceptionally expensive. 
I would suggest a lot of caution in terms of what is done in that sector. Can I can I, can I add something, Sean, on, on the auto? Uh, one of the one of the risks that I don't think has been uh, recognized yet, and uh, that seems to me is looming, and that is the possibility of some kind of a trade war battle over uh, automobiles. Uh, if you've got the American government and the Canadian governments putting money into North American auto companies, telling these auto companies what kind of cars to make, which is what is going to happen in the United States, then uh, uh, to do that, they're going to have to make sure that the uh, imports uh, don't take up too much of a share of the market. Because uh, There's a story in the Wall Street Journal this morning about Toyota and BMW getting ready to take advantage of the fact that the U.S. auto industry is in turmoil, and they're going to try and move more cars here. Uh, the, the potential for uh, the sort of uh, the trade issue, issues coming to the fore in the auto sector uh, is, is, seems to me quite real, and if it does happen, it's, it's a dangerous uh, 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 development that, that would hamper economic uh, growth even more if we had threats of a trade war over, especially over autos. I want an honest one-word answer from everybody to a question here. Uh, would you buy a GM Ford or Chrysler car? Yeah, I'd buy a GM, some GM cars. Cadillac's supposed to be a good car. The Chevy's, the, 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 our auto guy, uh, 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 I've forgotten his name now, yeah, Big Mouth, uh, whatever it is. Uh, uh, he says the Chevy Malibu is, uh, is up to any, any imported car. The Cadillac is up to any imported car. So I would take his word and buy a GM car, probably a Ford car. I don't know about Chrysler. Sorry, that wasn't one word. No, and I'm not even getting that from The Economist. I expect him to take 20 words where one would do. Yeah, you buy on quality, not on nameplate. The car is a good car, you buy it. I think the, the issue, though, is that people are concerned about is there going to be warranty? Is the car going to be around for a while? I think that's probably the underlying part. Okay, um, Diane, you, you were talking about uh, Obamanomics. I think that's the term you used. So the question is for you, uh, considering the impact uh, of Obama's spending plan, that it will dwarf whatever stimulus plan is put in place in Canada, what advice would you have for our finance minister? Well, I think that uh, we have to keep a close eye because of the enmeshment of our economies on whatever they do. If they cut taxes quite dramatically in areas where we we aren't in the game at all, it's going to affect us, whether that's uh, marginal effective uh, business tax rates or not so much income taxes because people don't move to pay less tax necessarily. But we have to really watch that. There is talk also that uh, the federal government uh, under Obama may buy, actually buy, the sales tax out from under the sales from the states where they want infrastructure projects to go ahead and the states are really in trouble. So this would mean that where a state has a 5% sales tax, they would replace that income stream by subsidizing that state so that state could go and build all the infrastructure and do some of the health care and other things that they want them to do because they don't do it directly as they do here in Canada. In states where there's little or no sales taxes, they would just get a windfall. So it's it's it's, it's kind of an interesting uh, form of uh, uh, trickle-down effect that they may do. If they drop their sales taxes, we have a very big open border with a lot of ways for people to uh, smuggle things. So, you know, we have to watch what they do like a hawk and wherever possible try and blend in so we're not disadvantaged. Or, alternatively, become advantaged because they've done something foolish. One of the areas we probably don't want to follow the uh, U.S., a good example would be last year when the President and Congress decided to send every American a check. So uh, that check arrives in uh, May, June, and July, and spending gets a temporary hit May, June, July. There's no more checks in August, September, October, and the economy uh, goes into relapse. We've got to do things in this country that have fundamental positive uh, impact over a longer period of time, no quick fixes. And uh, I think uh, Terence was the one that mentioned uh, about uh, employment insurance and the like, skills training. Uh, those type of efficient, though, yeah, those, John, uh, the, uh, those type of things have the potential to add materially to our, uh, our long-run competitive advantage. Uh, we've got to avoid the quick fixes for sure. Uh, Greg Mankiw, uh, the economist at, uh, I think he's at MIT, 
had a piece out the other day in which she had, uh, if the government spends a dollar, the return to the economy is one dollar. If the government gives a tax cut to business, the return on a dollar is three dollars. Uh, uh, so there's a big difference there. Whether governments would actually do that is another matter, uh, and they don't always follow compelling logic like that, but uh, that would add, be his suggestion. If I can just add something, Terence, that the study here that I've seen that's very authoritative is if we broaden and deepen unemployment insurance in Canada to take some of the, the Brunt of that as a shock absorber, for every dollar of that, it's a $1.6 return to the economy. So it is a good bang for the buck. And I don't know if a lot of people in this room realize that people who work full time, part time in Canada are, are taxed for employment insurance benefits but cannot claim it. That's just one simple and very fair, it seems to me, way to cushion the blow on a lot of people. And those people spend money. I just said, uh, I. I don't think we're going to see a lot of uh, business tax cuts through in this budget. We, it came down another half point last week. Uh, we're going down from 19% currently to, I think, 15 in 2012. So those tax cuts are already planned. They may be accelerated, I guess, but uh, I don't foresee huge personal or business tax cuts in this. We just have another minute or so left, and I'll let anybody weigh in briefly. We have about one minute exactly. Will we ever have an economic union with the United States and Canada, and would that be good for Canada right now? I think we should take them over. <laughs> Reverse takeover bid with our, using our oil assets. Well, as long as we don't get their debt, we'd be okay. <laughs> okay, well, that concludes our question and answer session. <laughs> How do you top that? Uh, before I hand the podium uh, back over to, to Helen uh, and adjourn the meeting, I'd like to uh, uh, invite you to take advantage of the complimentary National Post subscription that is provided exclusively for all of you today. That will entitle you to a 30-day subscription, a complimentary one if you're not already an avid National Post subscriber. Uh, I want to thank all of our panelists uh, for their outlooks today. Uh, thank you for joining us. Appreciate the invitation, and now I'd like to turn it uh, back over to uh, Helen Burston and the Canadian Club of Toronto. I want to thank Gordon Fisher of the National Post uh, for putting on a great event. Back over to you, Helen. Thank you. Thank you, and uh, thank you to our panelists. Thank you to our moderator, Sean O'Shea, and thank you all for joining us today. I'd also like to reiterate our special appreciation to Scotiabank, a sponsor of this 2009 annual financial outlook. With everything that's happening and will happen in the year to come, from Wall Street to Bay Street to Parliament Hill, we do indeed live in turbulent and uncertain times. Keynesian economy, economics seem to be back in fashion, out of necessity, if nothing else. I'm reminded of Keynes' reference to the broken-down automobile when he spoke about economic collapse. Just because we have, an, have alternator trouble, he said, we shouldn't assume that we will soon be back in a rumbling wagon and that motoring is over. Sounds like the trick is to find a really good mechanic. This session will be broadcast on Rogers TV, but for those here today, thank you for joining us, and this meeting is now adjourned. <laughs>